Hi, I'm Dylan Taylor, Chairman and CEO of Voyager Space Holdings. I'm Ken Eppins, Founder and CEO of Orbit Guardians. Hi, I'm Raphael Rodkin, Founder of E2MC Space Ventures. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is not what is termed professional advice. The Cold Star Project is proudly presented by the Operational Excellence Society. Cold Star Tech is a supporter of the OPEX Society, and Jason Canigan is a member of its board of advisors. Talk with us at Cold Star Tech to find out what we can achieve together with your Lean Six Sigma or Operational Excellence programs. And check out opexsociety.org to learn more. My guest today is Dr. Bill Conley. He got his Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering and then his Doctorate of Philosophy in Mechanical Engineering also uh, from Purdue and went to the United States Navy where he was an engineer for four years. Then he moved on to a very interesting position at DARPA where he was a program manager and uh, as you know it's a two-year thing. And then he moved on to become something where I noticed him. He was a, uh, the title is Senior Executive Director Electronic Warfare at the United States Department of Defense. Basically, he was in the Department of Defense and the guy to talk about regarding electronic warfare. He did that for four years. Following that, he did some interviews and where I noticed him was in a long-form content. I watch a lot of long-form videos, right, in the hopes of getting a nugget or two. So Bill was talking at the Mitchell Institute, and that's a great channel on YouTube. If you're into this kind of thing, you should check that out. And what he mentioned that really made me sit up and take notice was that the United States had done nothing, from his perspective, in terms of improving electronic warfare technology in the last 20 years. That got my attention, and I really wanted to connect with this guy. So in the meantime, he had left the Department of Defense and gone into private industry. He's now the Chief Technology Officer and a Senior Vice President at Mercury Systems. And so I had to uh, kind of find him, <laughs> Jason Pennon. So we connected about a year ago on LinkedIn, but then never really had the chance to speak. And fortunately, uh, an opportunity came up where I was able to speak with him, and uh, it was pretty much a good meeting of the minds at first sight. One of the things that, again, jumped out at me was Bill's bringing up a topic that we're going to look at today that just, it, it floored me because this is a conversation that I can't have with many people. You have to know a lot about history. You have to be thinking. You have to understand geopolitics. You have to be looking ahead. And so I was just totally stoked when he brought up this topic on his own. <laughs> delighted. So we're going to talk today about the similarities and differences between what's called the Concert of Europe as we're going through the 1800s and into the early uh, 1900s and especially as the conflict which we call the First World War was coming and the ways of deterrence and communication that they had and comparing and contrasting with what's going on today between the United States and China and what we can glean from that. So this is going to be a very exciting conversation if you're interested in geopolitics and the future of the world and whether we're going to all blow each other up or not, okay? <laughs> so join us. This is really great. Bill, welcome. Let's begin with effective communication, I think. How, how do we know the other side actually heard what we said or how do we know that what we're communicating is what we want them to receive? 
Yep. So, so, so Jason, a, a phenomenal way to start the conversation, right? And, and it's interesting because you and I are sitting here having a communication right now, yeah. ideally effective and ideally for everyone that, you know, has the chance to, uh, to join and watch as well, that they also find it effective. What, what's interesting about communication is it's something that all of us understand, and yet it is simultaneously something that we very infrequently really spend the time on to go, is the message I thought I delivered actually what the other person heard? Right. And so effective communication may be exactly what you and I are doing right now. It may be something that I do with my wife around the dining room table later. Right. We, we strive to have effective communication. It occurs in the business place. Right. And so if I look yesterday, you know, the different meetings I was in, did we truly have effective communication as I wear my, you know, my day job hat being the chief technology officer at Mercury Systems and talking about technology and our investment and where we're going and why. Um, you can talk about effective communication when you think about, you know, how we industry communicate with the government. But you can also think about effective communication when governments communicate with each other. Mm. Um, and so no different than you and I can sometimes end up having a disconnect. We can have one in, uh, in, our, in our personal relationships. We can have them in our professional relationships. The exact same thing can also happen between nation states. And so then the question is, when we think about deterrence to, to your earlier point, and we think about, you know, hey, are we truly having that effective communication? such that both sides really understand what it is that each other are trying to do. And so my hope is over the hour that we spend together, right, that A, we have effective communication, but B, that overall, how we think about deterrence, how we think about, you know, geopolitical history and the balance of power over a century, um, you know, that we also think about what it means to have an effective communication in that regard, too. Excellent. And, and folks, some of the stuff you're going to just take for granted because, again, we do it every day. But the duplication of ideas, that mental picture in the other person's head, and then the feedback that, yeah, they got it, it's often missing and in our personal lives and in nation state uh, discussions. I mean, you just think back to the USSR versus America and the Cold War, right, and the, the ease of misunderstanding. Um and, and and this goes back again to World War One as well. Barbara Tuckman wrote The Guns of August with the thesis, the whole central point was about misunderstandings leading to conflict and unnecessary, potentially unnecessary conflict, right? Which is a concern to me. I don't want any of us going to war for not the right reasons. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, that's, that's a real problem. And it can happen. Uh, typically, what we've seen is it's very easy to assume the nature of other nation states and what they want. And we really don't know for sure. We're wrong a lot. I think that's something that I'd like to to put out there at the start of all this is that we're we're wrong a lot more than than we think. So let let's go back. We've had these um these balloons, UFOs, uh, things from China potentially, right, getting shot down in the last few weeks. That is a form of communication as well. I think of President Kennedy isolating Cuba and going back to the movie Thirteen Days, which was quite historically accurate. Uh, Admiral Anderson being shouted at by the Secretary of Defense. Uh, this is President Kennedy communicating with with uh, Premier Khrushchev, right? No touchy, right? You know, get this out of here. So, so tell us a little bit about your thoughts about the the Chinese balloon that was shot down and and uh, how that works in in communication. Yeah. No, it it's it's a it, it's a very interesting, right? I think if we if we step away from kind of the raw emotion of of you know the concept of having our our airspace be penetrated by another nation and you know what does this mean and what are they trying to do and and i'm i'm sure you know sitting sitting here in this forum there's what we can say i'm confident that there's a whole bunch of stuff behind some big thick green doors that you know reasonably gets pretty interesting to uh to get to know as well um but if you think about it for as publicly 
as as the bloom getting shot down was right with an f-22 interestingly the first f-22 kill ever um in terms of air-to-air combat was actually going after a balloon and so it is interesting right and you know if you look at the first uh the first combat use of the f-22 it actually was in syria back in 2014 Mm. right and so a a platform to the earlier conversation you know really kind of at the end of the cold war that was all about air dominance and what was going to be required how and when and why does it get used much later Mm -hmm. um you know a couple a couple decades later Mm -hmm. but you know what is the logic behind that um, and it becomes really interesting to think about the cost of a balloon versus the cost of an F-22 per flight hour and the cost of an AIM-9X missile, mm-hmm. um, right? And, and you, you can think through, you know, hey, balloons generally run at higher altitude, what aircraft can get up there, therefore what aircraft can take the shot. Uh, you can sit there and you can think about, you know, hey, is the gun system, I, I don't think the low observability features of the F-22 are particularly important, to, uh, you know, when we think about this. But obviously that ability to, you know, say, okay, what weapon system am I going to use? Ideally, it would be a bullet that only costs a couple bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, ignore the flight cost per hour to get the F-22 up there and to, you know, pull off the targeting and et cetera. Um, ultimately, an AIM-9X missile, right? And so the ability to make use of all the modern electronics to be able to go ahead and have that moment to say, not only did we see what you were doing, but we chose to take action. And we want to make sure that you understand that this is what we may choose to do again in the future. Um, right. But then the question is from both sides, what is it that we were hoping to communicate? And, you know, candidly, if I step back from it a little bit and we think about the Cold War as, uh, as we hit on there, you know, at the uh, with uh, with the Bay of Pigs in Cuba and, you know, John Kennedy, et cetera. Um, right. Think about the U-2 flights. Think about the SR-71 and the entire purpose of, in many ways of developing that platform to be able to provide that picture. Um, if you want to go to, you know, a dark corner of, uh, of the internet, you actually can, you know, read up things talking about that Eisenhower intentionally let Sputnik launch first mm. because satellites don't turn 90 degrees very well. Um, and so after the Soviet Union had launched Sputnik for the United States to then overfly the Soviet Union seemed completely reasonable because Sputnik had already overflown everything too. Mm. Um, right. And so again, you know, what is the timing of that communication? What is the message that you hope to send? How do you talk about this is how much national treasure I am willing to expend to be able to counter something that you think would be valuable? And so when you think about all the different ways of getting intelligence, all the different ways of having that communication, what is it we choose to engage? What is it we choose not to? And what are those things that then capture the, the overall, you know, every, everyday American, uh, right? And, and causes them to feel in some way, shape or form or another. Um, right. What's interesting though, and I, I think a really interesting thread to pull on is, is when does something go from a skirmish, right? And, and the number of times that all of us have said, well, you know, if the bloom goes up in, in the, you know, South China Sea then, um, and so it's a little bit amusing. We now can make jokes about balloons that actually did go up. Um, but there's actually some really interesting history coming out of the, the beginning of World War II, and in particular, the German U-boats that were going after Allied shipping. Um, and so in many ways, it really was just a skirmish until both sides converged on the same metric. And so the metric was the number of tons of Allied shipping lost divided by the number of German submarines lost. The one side wanted to maximize it, the other side wanted to minimize it. But because they were fighting over the same metric, it very quickly begins to push you into a conflict because you're working to pull on the rope, you know, in a game of tug of war in exactly the opposite directions. In comparison, if you don't converge on the same metric, in many cases, you can find strategic off ramps that allow both sides to feel good about what they accomplished and simultaneously de-escalate and back away from a conflict. So again, effective communication. Do we want to purposefully converge on those same metrics mm. or do we not? And we we get a choice in that. Yeah, that that is fascinating to me. So the intensity rises as you both 
come to this understanding that this is the measure. Even if you don't talk to each other about it in, with words, <laughs> you're going to do it with actions, right? And you're going to pour more resources into it. You brought up a couple of other things too that that are interesting. Um, the idea of using a, a very expensive missile to shoot down a, a relatively cheap balloon, right? Um, and also with the submarines kind of doing a, a similar sort of, th- uh, well, this is going in reverse though, right? From, from before, uh, it, going into World War One, World War Two. how do we use aircraft carriers? A cheap torpedo launched by a relatively inexpensive plane can sink a very expensive battleship quickly, yep. right? A torpedo from a submarine can do the same thing, right? And, and so we're, you know, with the United States as the the big military superpower, we're we're doing the opposite. We're spending a very expensive weapon to destroy a relatively cheap thing, right? And said differently, Jason. We're we, communicating. Yes, we are communicating. <laughs> right? We're willing to do that. Yep. I guess is is one takeaway from that. Yep. That you could take, although they could look at us and go, "Wow, oh, stupid! <laughs> you know, how yeah. very inefficient! We'll, we'll just throw a thousand balloons at you and bankrupt you that way, or something." Yeah. Like that. Yep. <laughs> Have fun launching your expensive missiles. You mentioned here in our notes, um, we work at, we move at the speed of trust, and and I'd like to explore that a little bit. Yep. It um so so it it first off where you know where and why I kind of I I like to use the uh, the quotation it's actually uh, Jimmy McStravick who is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense that I worked for when I first started working in the Pentagon um, had a a very large number of quotations but one of them that he often found himself using is we move at the speed of trust mm-hmm. um, and so you know I think there's a there's a lot of ways where that becomes really interesting and so what is the trust that we have. Right. What is the trust that we we have with our government? What is the expectation that we set on both sides? Um, and and in that, that allows us then to go quickly because we understand each other. We understand the mental model that each other have mm-hmm. um, in that. But when you take that to the nation state level and you now start thinking about moving at the speed of trust uh, between you know different governments, are they willing to actually completely intertwine their systems together and actually become completely dependent on each other? With that comes a whole lot of trust. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when when is that trust given? And why is that trust given? And what are the ramifications of that? And so oftentimes documented through treaties. Um, and those treaties can obviously end up with uh, with war games uh, that I imagine we will end up talking about later mm-hmm. going into World War One that suddenly result in very different behaviors mm-hmm. um, coming, uh, coming out the far side. But to your point, right? We move at the speed of trust. Mm-hmm. And so how do we end up building those trust-based relationships? We're communicating. All right. And and as simple as it gets, if I know Bill and I talk with him and I see we have a shared reality to to a great degree, right? We share the same values. Uh, I know he's competent. If we work together, yep. given the constraints of the project, the resources, the goals, et cetera, I can just leave him alone. <laughs> I can let him do what he wants because I don't have to look over his shoulder. I know I have the trust that he is proceeding in a way that I would agree with and I don't have to worry about. Yep. Um, you mentioned the, the intertwining of defense structures. There are probably a lot of people out there who are like, oh, what do you mean? Right? If you're not if you're not in the military or, or have looked at this, I think of uh, RAF Filingdales, which is a missile watching system or, or facility run by the British, staffed by the British. Uh, I interviewed Ralph Dinsley, Dins, who, who ran the thing at one point, and yet, the technology is American. 
<laughs> and that's that's a, an idea of like that trust and embedded uh, systems in this yep. relationship and that. And and then also trusting the data coming through the entire aggregation will be shared with with everyone required to make sure that they can make the right decision based off of that, you know, that understanding of the geopolitical environment mm -hmm. that, that we now operate in. Um, and so there's there's trust on the development side. There's also trust on the operational side. Right. And and it even extends to something like uh, space object tracking. Right. Yeah. If I talk to Mori Baja, I'm going to find out pretty quickly there's an American system of, of watching the data, tracking, identifying, predicting. There's a French system. There's a Russian system, right? And and you got to understand that, folks, they don't always all agree <laughs> on what's where or what is there or not there, right? And so if they're willing to share their data, we're going to get a much better picture of what's happening, right? It's not, it's not like there's FAA uh, transponders on each thing up there. It's not what's happening, right? Yeah. So we're looking at light and guessing, right? Yep. Um, and, okay. and everyone's looking at different points in time as well mm -hmm. and based off of what they observed. And so it it's fascinating the amount of it, which is this is what I observed. Therefore, I believe this is what's going to happen in the future. Mm -hmm. um, and so we at, at you know, all levels of our life, we're pretty comfortable trying to make those predictions. Mm -hmm. um, and again, the number of times that we I, I predict that someone understands exactly what it is that I said, um, not going back and confirming that. And so similarly with with space debris. Uh, there's a lot of things up there that you go, hey, it should behave like this, mm. but does it always, um, right? And it becomes arguably the objects that behave the least like you expect becomes the ones that are the most interesting because it's the place where your intuition is not confirmed. Uh -huh. <laughs> and we're wrong a lot, once again. Yep. And, <laughs> and just and, because something has gone this way for that long doesn't mean it's always yep. going to. Yep. And I, I learn very little when I'm right. I learn a lot when it turns out that I'm incorrect. Mm. So I, I enjoy minimize the impact reason. of incorrectness. Yeah. Because yep. <laughs> if that's an asteroid hitting the Earth, we're all dead. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, the problem-solving methods available uh, from that diplomatic process, the Concert of Europe of the 1800s, which came after the Napoleonic era, yep. uh, when they did not want one power dominating the continent, and uh, and 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 today, you know, we've got. I guess if we look at 1900, there was this this alliance program, the isolation of Germany, right? Some very autocratic states that were a lot weaker on the inside than maybe they looked on the outside. Russia was very ready to fall apart. Uh, Germany was not as secure and a relatively new nation. Uh, yeah. it, was, it was nowhere near as strong internally as people thought. Um and but what methods did they have? Like if you've got the British and the French armies encountering each other in a small group at Fashoda, and like, okay, what do we do? Right? Let's break yeah. up the champagne and wait while the diplomats figure this out. Versus today, and we've got the United Nations and other methods. What what problem solving methods do we have? How do they compare, contrast? Yep. How do we make sure that our um our modern speed of data doesn't fool us into making some sort of decision too quickly. Yep. So, so I, I actually, I, I think I'm going to back up. I'm going to take the question maybe in a, in a slightly different direction. Okay. Um, that, that I, that, that I hope sequentially helps everyone else that's, uh, that's listening to us as we go through. Um, so, so obviously, right. One of, one of the foundations of overall deterrence is you have to understand if this happens then, what is it I need to do? And so war gaming, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is which is easy to say. And then you go, well, what is it? What does it really mean? And so 
if you look at all of the war games going into World War I, they basically said whoever moves first mm -hmm. will end up with an advantage. And everybody said, but to move is crazy, so never move. But if you think someone else is moving, you must immediately mobilize mm -hmm. um, and you know, break glass here in case of war and use this plan. And the plan basically said, however quickly you can get to the front, this is, this is what is going to make the, uh, make the difference. Mm -hmm. um, ultimately, what did that lead us to? It led us into the trenches of World War I and, and very little motion in many ways, right, for nearly the entire duration of the war. Um, what was interesting about wargaming is all of those war games have assumptions. Mm -hmm. And some of those assumptions are going to be correct. And several of those assumptions will most likely not be, um, right? And so the assumptions that go into a conflict the day after the previous one ends, you feel pretty good about because you actually know you know, what is the equipment that is available and how is it going to be used and what are the tactics and, you know, what are the exchange ratios and how capable is this missile or that missile or, you know, platform, whatever it may be, how survivable is a battleship or an aircraft carrier or any, any other platform that is, uh, that is out there. Um, what's interesting though, is the longer that you go between two peers actually having a war, the worse and worse those assumptions get as time goes on. Um, and so what's interesting when you look into the buildup into World War I, is the previous true peer-on-peer -peer conflict um, of real duration was actually the American Civil War. Hmm. Um, and so it becomes an interesting debate that you know, all of us can, uh, can argue over, which is, is the situation we find ourselves in today more like right before World War I, or is it the interwar period between World War II and World War I? Um, I fall pretty strongly in the camp that I actually think that we are much closer to the World War I scenario because between the end of the American Civil War, when the Gatling gun was this like brand new thing, horse drawn, you know, mechanically turning the crank and the machine gun, uh, which is which logically is is kind of a, a logical thing to do, but is a very different volume of fire and therefore created a very different environment on the battlefield. Um, what is it we have today? We have low observable, you know, stealth aircraft. We have much more capable guided munitions. We have a lot more data links. We have the entire kind of, you know, hey, what does it mean to fight a war under informationalized conditions on the United, that's the Chinese language uh, way of describing it roughly translated on the American side, we would say JADC2, uh, right? And so, you know, when, when we have all of these new conflicts, but an expectation of everything in our world being densely connected, right? As we both have our cell phones in front of us and the ability to globally dial anyone and just immediately go ahead and have that conversation. I have a hunch today that there are some really bad assumptions that lead us to believe if this occurs, then this is the right thing to do. And the reality is many of those assumptions are correct and we don't know which ones are wrong. Um, and unfortunately, the only way to really prove that is to, is to end up in some sort of crucible of conflict, which is, you know, forces some part of that to get played out. Um, going back to World War I, it was the, uh, the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 to 1905 um, that I think in many ways, you know, kind of emboldened Japan um, over the next, uh, you know, the next what, four or five decades um, in terms of what they were capable of, but also just the amount of it that is geography that plays into it, the length of time it took for the Russians to be able to move ships, to be able to do what they thought they needed to accomplish and, and ultimately didn't play out well for them, but that's a different can of worms, um, right? And so the length of time required, geography is still a thing. Moving fleets still takes a lot of time. Um, and so with that in mind, right, on, on a, the you know historical battlefield, uh, you, you can decide that you're going to, you know, just give the diplomats a little bit of time to, uh, to go ahead and figure out um, what it is that's going on. I think the challenge is when all of the military wargaming says whoever moves first fastest most likely gets an advantage. Um, and so going back to space and debris tracking in space, 
is it a first mover advantage in space? Is it a first mover advantage in the ocean? Is it a first mover advantage, you know, going after airfields? Um, where does someone believe that having that first move is advantageous and they therefore don't choose to give any of the other diplomatic forums uh, the ability to go ahead and kind of say, let's stop. Do we really want to do this? Continental Europe, you know, through the end of uh, the 19th century, they believed they built something that was stable. Ultimately, it proved out not to be the case. Um, how do we not make the same mistake today believing that we have created an ecosystem? We're going into a war is, is so silly that no one would ever dare do it right up until we have a couple of leaders that decide that they want to, because as Klaus Wirsch said, uh, war is merely the continuation of politics by other means. Mm. Right on. Yeah, you've covered a lot there. Uh, I think of the European powers sent observers to watch the American Civil War. They didn't take it as seriously as they should have, but they did send people over to have a look. And I don't think too many people know about that. Uh, the Russo-Japanese War, yeah. <laughs> First time an imperial power had gotten its clock cleaned by uh, by an upstart nation who was in a rush to modernize. But Japan made that decision, right? It's it's eat or be eaten, and we better <laughs> become one of the, the strong peoples, right? Yep. And do it now, fast, right? How fast could we do it? Uh, and then waiting, yeah, for the Russian ships to come around. If you had attacked sooner, you probably would have an advantage. You have the ships, they don't have their fleet there. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. Really, really interesting. Let's talk a minute about the, the behavioral or rational economics approach um, about avoiding war, there, there seems to be this belief, and it's been around a very long time, that, well, our economies are so intertwined and commerce is so intertwined, it would be foolish to start a war. Uh, and then <laughs> we've seen it, right? There was a guy named Norman Angel who wrote a book called The Great Illusion before World War I, uh, saying, you know, that this is um too too economically intertwined to go to war and then finding out that uh, well no actually it's not uh how do we avoid that today is there is there a chance of that happening today so is is there a chance of using it to avoid i would i would like to hope so yeah. um is there a chance that we we blow right by that guardrail absolutely um and so you know they're they're obviously working working in my day job in the microelectronics space um, and therefore spending a lot of time following, you know, the supply chain and where materials are coming from and, you know, what is fabbed where and how long does it take and, and all the moving parts and pieces there. Hmm. Um, it's, it's actually interesting when you, when you look at the number of times from the United States side, as we go, hey, what, what, what would an invasion of, into Taiwan by China look hmm. like and what are the ramifications? Uh, we very quickly start talking about the semiconductor industry. Because the vast majority of semiconductors that go into the devices that we are talking on right now mm -hmm. um, are, are coming through Taiwan, are, you know, fab there, are packaged in Southeast Asia. There's, there is a massive amount of that, which, which is occurring. And in many ways, not a bad thing. Um, what's interesting, though, is if you look at the Chinese logic behind what, what they call reunification, um, one could argue that maybe the, the better word is unification as opposed to reunification, which implies that it previously was joined. Uh, but whichever word you prefer there, the, the time span when China first started talking about reunification actually predates uh, the movement of substantial portions of the semiconductor industry into Taiwan. Mm -hmm. It predates the formation of TSMC as a company by about a decade. Um, and so we, I think, on the United States side are very much looking at this through an economic-centric mm -hmm. lens. In comparison, I think China's looking at it much more through a national pride and what does this mean in terms of, you know, our ability to bring everyone back together. 
um, under, you know, under one flag and, and one system, if we actually look at, you know, largely what they've done in, uh, in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. um, and so with that in mind, are we going to posture attempting to use economics as the deterrent because it's what we value in comparison with someone like China choose to attempt to use, you know, that overall more diplomatic national pride argument because it's what they value to attempt to create some level of deterrence. And so again, effective communication, if we understand that about both sides, what is a very narrow path that we may be able to walk that means that we don't actually have to shoot at each other? Um, in comparison, if we pick the same metrics and if we line up and we don't actually think what the other person is trying to say, um, you know, I, I think there is the the probability for the, the same miscalculation that ultimately led us into World War One. Okay, that's a serious issue. Uh, folks, coming out of World War II, we had uh, Chiang Kai-shek, who was a, a general, uh, and Mao sort of dueling it out as to who was going to be in charge of China. And uh, surprisingly to most people, Mao ended up winning. And Chiang had to get out of there and go to Taiwan. And that's how that started. So the reunification idea kind of makes sense from that perspective, right? Uh, we we want this back. What are the, this is a crazy question. I don't even know if you're going to be able to answer it. But in the, in the case of an invasion of Taiwan, what are the chances that all those semiconductor factories would be blown to bits? Um. So, so I, I, I don't, I don't know the answer, um, yeah. is a, is, is a good, honest way of putting it. Um, the amount of capital that is tied mm -hmm. up in the semiconductor facilities mm -hmm. is massive, right. um, which therefore obviously makes it, makes it strategically a very interesting target, mm -hmm. um, for, for everybody to look at, um, given the value that is there. Um, arguably though, the real asset is actually the people that run the facilities, mm -hmm. um, and are capable of running it. Right. And so when you look mm -hmm. at the process engineers, um, right. right. That no kidding, know how to make the stuff run. You, you can always get new equipment. It's really hard mm. to get someone to use equipment that they've never used previously. Okay. That's, that's interesting. Uh, I mean, I imagine there's going to be collateral damage and people getting in the way, but I'm wondering how deliberate that, that attack direction would be, or, well, let's try and plan our bombing runs to avoid this area of town. Kind of thing, right? uh, what would you do, folks? It is very, very, very expensive to set up a semiconductor factory. Uh, I found this out. I, I kind of knew it, but I found it out when I tried pursuing the question. Why doesn't Elon Musk set up with his boring machine um, an underground semiconductor factory? I thought in America here, right? I, I thought about this a year ago and I started looking into it. Oh dear. <laughs> There's a very good reason why. And then, like you say, you've got to have the people to run it and those have to come uh, from somewhere. Yeah. And, and yeah, if you're, if your check writing authority begins at uh, you know, a $10 billion level, uh, you can probably build a modern fab. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't have, you know, order, order $10 billion, it's very hard to do, but then there's the entire support ecosystem that goes around it. Uh, which is a, an amazing amount of chemical engineering, you know, going through making the wafers, making the substrates, the the packaging. It is it is a fascinatingly complex ecosystem. Mm -hmm. um, but if you look at a kind of the Silicon Valley side, you know, Bay Area, the movement across the Pacific Ocean, um, and you know what it, what is it that was going after? You know, cheaper labor rates. What was going after a workforce that was sized appropriately to be able to do it? Um, and where where you could find people with that attention to precision which is required to do things that are, you know, a millionth of a meter, if not a billionth of a meter in size. Um, I, I'm, I'm pretty good, but I am, yeah. I am not that patient, yeah. uh, nor am I that precise to, uh, to, you know, in my personal life with my hand, be able to hold it that, uh, that precisely. Mm -hmm. 
Right. Uh, I, I ran a metal fab shop for a couple years. Uh, I can see a 30 second of an inch with yep. my eye, just looking at things. And when something's bent or out of shape, other people can't see it like a railing or something, but I see it. It's like, right? nope. But <laughs> yeah. uh, we had a machine shop across the street. I, there was like everything you wanted was within a block, like a French restaurant, a sale manufacturer, a beetle spa for the cars, right? Just everything was within a block here. It was awesome. Wood Woodworking <laughs> shops, right? And we had this machine shop across the street. And I went to Fred, who was this South African <laughs> machine guy, machinist. And I'm like, Fred, how do you even see that thousandth of an inch, right? Because I And he's like, well, you'd be trained to see it if you worked here long enough. So yeah. it's possible. But the holding of the hand, that's a different thing entirely. Yep. Um, it, you know, it, it, the structure that's required, the infrastructure that's required to build these things is tremendous. Um, but even just going back to a water-cooled machine gun in, in 1910 requires... Uh, a, a machinist-based society, right? That probably wasn't around in in 1845 or something yeah. like that, or even 1860, right? At, at you know when the when the Civil War was happening here. Yep. Uh, really, really interesting. Do you believe that there is a similarity in the matchup of this 2020s U.S.-China relationship to the 1910s British and German? So, so short answer: yes. Okay. Um, in, in a, in a variety of ways. Right. And so I, I think it's the, you know, who, who has been in power? Um, how, how is it that we, in, you know, how is it that the, the UK was deriving economic power? Um, and, you know, overall, you know, military diplomatic and, and everything overall through their, the, the nature of their colonies and, and how they, how they got there. Right. And so by controlling shipping, what is it that they were able to do? Um, you know, the amount of coastline in the UK obviously exceeds the amount of coastline in Germany. Um, and as important as it became in that era to be able to have that, that global trade ecosystem and to be able to own and run that. Um, and so over my shoulder, I actually have the book, uh, The End of the British Empire, uh, which, is, which is an interesting look into why, you know, through the 1960s and 70s, um, it all basically came to an end without really a shot being fired, which right. is a, uh, a different but interesting history. So we'll, we'll have to come back and spend an hour on that <laughs> at, at some point as well for, uh, for, for what can happen. Um, in comparison, right, the, the Germany was, was maybe a little bit of a late bloomer, uh, for yeah. lack of a better way of putting it, and, and a little bit of a late bloomer coming onto the stage and therefore said, hey, this is, this is what we think right looks like. Um, historically, this is our appropriate place um that that we believe that we belong and as a mm -hmm. result of that these are the things that we are going to you know begin valuing and begin building toward mm -hmm. and making sure that we are prepared to uh to be able to do um and you know the the interesting one is as i look at this question and, and think about it a little bit um right if you ask anybody in in the united states you know hey what 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 percentage of world power uh does has does the united states have we would probably start our x-axis Right, it would end today because you know 2023 is interesting, but we probably would begin about the late 1930s to the, the mid 1940s because that's when America really began playing on the global stage. Um, if you were to go and ask someone in China, you know, how much how much does China contribute to global GDP? Would they start in 1945? Probably not. <laughs> um, right? Would they? You know, when would they start? Right? And so I I think everyone tends to like to start from a position when they were in relative you know a dominance. Um, you know, kind of position. And so would someone in China actually start two to 3,000 years ago and say, this is the role of China, um, you know, looking across, you know, looking across global production. Um, and therefore, this is the appropriate share today 
that we should still have looking at the heyday, um, right? And and the century of humiliation, uh, right? That in many ways, I think led to what we see today. Mm -hmm. But again, it's that, are we communicating? Do we actually understand what the other side values? Um, and are we therefore finding ways that that provide those off ramps um, that don't require us to line up at the OK Corral at noon tomorrow? <laughs> right. Yeah, having different measures is so important, and maybe encouraging different measures somehow. That could be a propaganda thing. Yeah, hmm, I need to think it, that through. <laughs> huh. So, so in interesting history. Um, if you actually look in in response to Sputnik. Um, you know, the United States ended up uh, very short, you know, very shortly thereafter with the formation of NASA, uh, the growth of NASA in, into what NASA is today. And we very publicly had a space race. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? And there were times that the Soviet Union was ahead. There were times the United States was ahead. And, and the lead position would actually go back and forth mm-hmm. on a somewhat regular basis. It would make the news. It would make the papers. Everybody would say, oh, this is what we did. Ah, we got him. And then we go, oh, God, they caught us. Now, now we have to. <laughs> Right. No, no different than watching a good football game. Right. You mm-hmm. know, both ideally in a good game, both sides at some point are are in the winning, you know, in the lead position and, and you get a couple of good lead changes. Um, and then if you also look at the same time, the formation of DARPA um, mm-hmm. basically coincided with the formation of NASA, which was the behind the door. What are the technologies if the balloon goes up to be able to make yeah. that joke? Um, right. You know, <laughs> this is what the technologies are that can be required. And let's make sure the United States never is surprised by someone like the Soviet Union getting the first object, uh, you know, into Leo. Hey, why shouldn't we have known that that was possible? Shouldn't we have already tested it? Um, right. And so it, it becomes very interesting when you look at DARPA's uh, mission statement, either generate strategic surprise or ensure that no one else ever can get it against us. Right. Um, and so when we think about where we are today, could we actually come up with something in the AI space, for example, right? And so on the documentary side, AlphaGo being a good example, um, could we actually set up something like AlphaGo where let's pick a relatively simple game, getting to the moon, uh, right? Or winning the game of Go, whatever it may be. And, and let's actually have a very public competition that can play out where both sides can have a level of national pride um, mm. as we go through and do it. At the same time, I, I think both of us are wise enough and, and you know, many folks listening and watching um, are going to go, hey, you know, we probably also should be prepared just in case. Um, and, you know, as a result, we will continue to uh, to invest in the technologies that we have to have just in case um, and, and be prepared. But could we actually end up satisfying many of those national pride arguments um, that show up on both sides if we were to choose to do something very publicly like the space race was during the Cold War? Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> you know, I only really understood or started learning about uh, DARPA and ARPA as it began uh, in the last year or so. Uh, started reading because I, I get I'm very interested in how we got here wherever mm-hmm. that is right and so the history of things is important to me um, but for some reason it didn't occur to me go find out about the history of DARPA and it's so intertwined post-World yep. War II with like who we are as Americans and and the struggles that those um, those scientists had were the same ethical things that we ended up uh, struggling with a little later uh, and and our technology, it really is derived uh, yeah. from that group. There's there's a direct correlation. It's not like co- commercial industry went aside and invented something you yeah. know, and, it, and then it came out. No, it's like it got invented through DARPA first, basically. And then, and, then and, and, and the uh, the ARPANET, the Internet is working out very well for us now today it is. where we can do this, you know, geographically distributed to uh, to, to make sure that we do. <laughs> yeah. Right. 
Well, let's let's talk about this. We've talked about China and the ebb and flow of China in history. Um, neither of us, I don't think, are, are claim to be experts. However, we have looked at it and we kind of understand why why China behaves the way it does today. Uh, a couple hundred years ago, there was a thing called the Opium Wars, and and uh, people went over to grab pieces of China. It was called the the watermelon ripe for splitting. You may have heard that in high school history or something like that right and so if you've been knocked down and and beat up and mugged in the street maybe when you get up again you might want to go around being uh, a little tougher right and, and and say a few things to a few people to make them leave you alone and so i get i get that part um some of the values are not quite in line <laughs> with, with ours right and, and that i can't agree with but the history and the ebb and flow uh as a nation's capabilities increase they're ambitions go up also right uh and and this is a problem with communication and understanding i believe too right and and as a strategist um there's that jerry purnell book the mode in god's eye uh i don't know if you've read that one but but they have a it's a great um first encounter of of alien life and they're basically nasty teddy bears um <laughs> with some some wonderful like oh gosh if we let them they will beat us and there's a as a, like a commander that's in the back basically with a big yeah. warship and he's not really interfering very much with the interaction but he's like look i can't behave or or take action or think based on what they are doing i have to do it from the capabilities of what they could do what they are capable of doing and maybe i gotta blow them up right <laughs> at this point um these these ambitions I've seen through history often end up around this idea of autarky, which is economic self-sufficiency, right? That's what mm -hmm. Hitler ultimately wanted. Um, and, and he wasn't an original in coming up with that. Uh, the, the German chancellor in world war one wanted the same thing. They wanted like a Dutch French German economic zone, basically. Right. Um, so along with that goal, when you've got an old empire and a new commercial uh oh, I froze there for a second. <laughs> okay. Um, a new commercial entity pushing up against a, an old empire and that that often leads to war. Um, and I wonder if if we're close to experiencing another outbreak like that today. So that's a that that's an open ended question. Um, <laughs> are we I, I would argue at some level we are nearly always continuously at risk mm -hmm. um, of of that occurring. Right. Mm -hmm. Um I think the, the 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 interesting part and kind of implicit in the question. Um, so if, if we look across so-called dime fills, so diplomatic information, military, economic, financial, intelligence, legal. So um, seven levers of, of international power. Um, we it, the, the question kind of intrinsically focuses on the economic side of it. Um, but but there's six other levers that are that are also out there that, that I think we simultaneously have to consider. Um, because each of each of them will also end up getting some level of a vote as as we go through um, break the the longer I think a, a society stays in a time of relative peace and the more equipment and material and et cetera that, that gets accumulated, the war games and the assumptions tend to say we're making the right decisions. Um, and you then feel really confident in your strategy, which also can make you a little bit big for your britches. Um, and right. so with with that in mind. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of different competing forces that, that begin to push us, uh, you know, broadly into that direction. And so, you know, the, the German word zeitgeist, right? We, we live in this lens that we, we believe the world that we see it today. Someday we're going to look back and go, what were we thinking? Um, but for where we sit today, it was the perfect thing to do. And it was the right action. 
and we modeled it, we understood it, right. and and this is the this is the best thing to do. And and you know, famously, hindsight's twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you would have told me that you know the year twenty twenty was uh, was going to largely be a pandemic lockdown year, I don't know if I really want to say hindsight in twenty twenty and Lincoln as uh, as you know necessarily being a good model. So there's mm-hmm. uh, there's a little bit of a pun in you know somewhere inside of that. Right. Um, but right, you know, I think the 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 question that you pose, right, the the longer that everybody continues accumulating. Um, and that desire for either, you know, hey, the, the, in, the independence of your, your governing system, the independence of your economy, the independence of your military, of your financial system, of your legal system, the ability to do something in the way that you desire or want. Um, in many ways, I, I think is a, it's a rational thing for someone to desire. Um, but the reality is we oftentimes end up actually advancing faster and getting a lot more done that adds value when we actually are dependent on each other. So it's an interesting mm. human juxtaposition. Okay. Hmm. <laughs> lots <laughs> lots to think about up. there. Yeah. 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 Um, wow. And, and there's, there's so many pieces to this puzzle, right? Uh, is there a way of deterring? We, we, you know, we come back to deterrence, right? Uh, this kind of conflict where a newer power or a resurging power wants uh, control, right, and and uh, an existing power uh, doesn't. By the way, folks, this period since World War II has been often termed the long peace, <laughs> which fits in very nicely with what Bill was saying about collecting men and material. And uh, I often have to remind myself: Look, we develop new technologies, new planes, new equipment, and that would we want to try this stuff out too, right? And in real life, um, I think one of the things that we discovered with the Ukraine conflict. For example, was space uh, technology was not the panacea that it was talked up to be up to that point, right? And uh, it's it's a thing, it's a factor, it's important, but it's not the whiz bang solution that that everybody thought it, it was. It does not make all problems go away, right? Yeah, yeah. nothing. We still have logistics <laughs> as, a, <laughs> as a major thing to worry about. Uh, do you think there's hmm, instability? in in the world today is it is it like going up to world war one that that whole era seems to be about the disintegration of the old order right Right. we have old empires falling apart um new ones trying to form uh you know prussia trying to get into the north german confederation and extract all the commercial value that was being produced there and pull it back over to these juncker estates in the east right and and France just kind of going, I don't know what's going on here, right? And, and but they're all building up this equipment, right? The the big military manufacturers were um, happily getting paid to equip them uh, and and getting them ready for conflict. Do we have indicators of a similar instability? So so I would say yes, and mm-hmm. I actually think it's much deeper in our society um, than than any of the examples you just gave. Okay. Um, so, so using the, the, the Thomas Kuhn definition of the word paradigm, mm. uh, which, which really is the, the mental model that we have for the world, right? And so if you believe the world is flat, you cannot simultaneously believe it is round. Mm. Um, and, and over time, society will, will make transitions into whatever that new way of thinking is. Um, Kuhn, Kuhn wrote about it through the, the lens of scientific advancement and the overall, you know, how long will a scientific theory stay valid? before we have to go to the next one. And what is the, the substantial increase in understanding that, that comes with each of those paradigm changes? Um, and so using kind of that term very strictly. Um, I actually believe that we are, we are seeing the cracks in postmodernism 
and we are seeing the cracks in postmodern thinking. Um, and so that is the part I think when, when you ask about, you know, what are the cracks in the foundation um, and what do those mean? It actually, in my opinion, is the overall, you know, postmodern zeitgeist that we live in. And we, we believe is accurate because we don't know what model comes next and it makes pretty good sense. But what is there that ends up occurring next and how do we get there? Um, and so with that in mind, if you actually look um, in many cases, the movement of, you know, what's happening in art, in literature, in science, in, um, you know, industry, in warfare, we end up going through some period of uh, transformation where we go to whatever the next era is. And so would we, for example, have had postmodernism if not for World War II? Hmm. Um, would we have entered into, you know, kind of the modern era um, if not for the failing of kind of the, the legacy system at the end of the 19th century and without having gone through World War I? Hmm. Um, and then I think it's a, a, a different but interesting question to say, what does it take to actually lead through one of these changes? Mm -hmm. um, and how do, we, how do we get there to the other side? Uh, but yeah, so I, I actually think that the, the cracks are much deeper than, than just a little bit of order here and a little bit of structure there. Um, I actually think it's, it's baked into how basically all of us as humans think. Okay. And I made a face at the beginning of your answer because you made me suddenly wonder if there was a Moore's law that would apply to paradigm changes, if it's speeding um, up. And that I'm, concerned me because, like, how do you how do you get a harness on that, right? So, so a um a, a different book to add to your reading list, but also for everybody listening, is uh, Robert Keegan's um, "In Over Our Heads." Okay. Um, and so he he basically he's a um, and I, I'm going to say a, a developmental um, um, psychiatrist, right? Mm -hmm. And so how do, how, do we, how do we age and how do we build different models? And I most likely got his actual job done a little bit wrong. So if he watches this, I apologize for, uh, for, for not getting that reference. Perfect. <laughs> but Robert Keegan. Um, and so it is, it is a look at, at, the, at the models we build for ourselves and the world around us and the societies around us. Mm. Um, and, and he basically argues, you know, with the book title, In Over Our Heads, uh, that we have too few people that have built a mental model that actually allows us to operate society at the scale that it now operates at, mm -hmm. um, which which is a, a a little bit of a you know take take a uh, take take a deep breath and and contemplate that one for a minute. Mm -hmm. um, and what does that mean? But arguably, the way that we get people to build a new and different mental model um, is is through that crucible of change, okay. um, right? And the entire study of change management in general, we don't like change. Um, but there are points in time where we actually go through really, really big changes in the grand scheme mm -hmm. very, very quickly. And we come out the other side and we are, as a generalization, we're okay on the other side. Right. As long as you're not in uh, Nagasaki, it, <laughs> you're yeah, okay. Yeah. Yep. All right. And, and folks, if you want a kind of a quick visualization of this sort of paradigm shift, I want you to think of like a biplane, a World War one biplane, which they were still using into the 30s on aircraft carriers, right? And then contrast that, uh, say from 1941 to 1945, with a with a B-29 bomber, which looks an awful lot like a, a modern bomber, right? And now we're we're actually shifting beyond that. So that that could be a mental picture that that could help uh, define this shift because it's stuck that way for a long time, right? The B-52 sort of shape, right, which we're still using uh, yep. today. Um, this it probably is just too expensive to replace right now. Although we've got the the B twos and and you know the yeah, the new and, one and that the they're working on. Yeah, as well. exactly. Okay. Wow. Well, I think we've covered a lot. Hopefully, we didn't just confuse the heck out of everybody. But I think the big takeaways about the paradigm shifts, 
the the convergence on measures being an intensifier of conflict. And I I just I, there's a note here that I wanted to mention about the Russo-Japanese War. Here you've got two bullet points there: twelve battleships lost and a hundred to two thousand hundred thousand to two hundred thousand people died. Is yep. that correct? In, in, in 1904 conflict? to 1905. And when you think about what we learned about in our history books, uh-huh. it generally doesn't make it into right, from, from a, you know, United States history, yeah. um, you know, and how we think about, you know, world history, it, that, that doesn't even make it into the, into the list. Mm-hmm. Right. And so our, our history of conflict is, you know, civil war to world war one to world war two, uh, you yeah. know, Korea, Vietnam, et cetera. Um, and so it is, it is a scale Mm-hmm. That that candidly, I don't think that we are particularly well prepared to to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, that when we look at Ukraine today, what is it we're seeing in Ukraine today? Probably, I bet you numbers that that would not feel unsimilar to that. Um, and so then I think the question is, you know, what are what are those lessons we need to learn? Um, and if we keep an eye on all of the different assumptions that are getting pressure tested, um, what is working out as expected? What is not working out as expected? And therefore, what uh, what what does or should the other side of this look like? Okay, and I'll remind people: just because a battle is popular in history does not mean it was decisive, and far <laughs> fewer battles were decisive than you think. <laughs> All right, Bill, thank you very much for doing this. I really look forward to having further conversations with you. There's a ton to learn. Um, it, who would you like to meet? Who would you like yep. to reach out and connect with? Uh, and and how would you like them to connect with you? Yep. So so the the how part is pretty easy. Um, I I'm 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 relatively speaking active on LinkedIn. Uh, there there obviously are people that are much more active than I am, but it's a uh, it's a good and globally available place to be able to find me quickly. Um, but the who part is mm-hmm. is arguably I think the the piece that is is the most interesting to me anyway, right? And so you know wrapped up in that there's. There's a lot of us, I think, that are, are very comfortable inside of the world that we live in. And there's a relatively small handful of us that I think are trying to go, hey, what is it that's going to be important with the, the intersection of technology, military power, you know, nation state power, economics, um, and, and all of that? And what does it look like in 10 to 20 years in the future? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, are, are we indeed reaching the end of postmodernism? And what, is, what does that mean for technology? Um, right. And, you know, how is how is ChatGPT and, a, and AI broadly, right, going to change the way that we we interface with each other in the world? Um, but what does that mean when someone can, you know, actually run something through a translator and get closer to, you know, capturing the same meaning? And so I, I think there's a there's a lot there to unpack, but it's that that fusion of, you know, art, history, literature, uh, warfare, technology, industry and, and not not just the history side of it. But what what line, if we draw through it and be it linear, be it exponential, be it whatever, um, what is it that we can begin to assert about society in the future? Okay. And I want to, frankly, I want to be one of those guys who helps <laughs> steer yeah, the ship. You, you right? already have my email, so you it's, really know where to yeah, find it's, me. It's, yeah. I, I feel it's safer <laughs> with <laughs> me trying to, to do something about it. Um, gosh, I, I want to leave our viewers with two ideas. Um, one is Stephen Kotkin, who is a, a professor... And he's written a giant three-volume thing on Stalin. But um, go on YouTube and search for him, and you can find him discussing the word Asia. And what does Asia mean conceptually? And it, that blew my mind, that one. Um, I think I think that's probably the figure. Finish up with that. But the, the translation thing that you mentioned, uh, it immediately made me think of um, Khrushchev. And he had a speech, 
and it was published and millions of Americans read it. And the headline was like, we will bury you. And years later, decades later, right, when he was gone even. But this had gotten into, again, the zeitgeist, right? The Russians are bad. They want to kill us all, this kind of thing, right? The translation was like, well, this was idiomatic, this phrase. He may have been trying to say, like, it's your funeral. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> big, big difference, right, in, in yeah. intention and meaning. And we began talking about communication. Um, you mentioned, um, I, I think quickly before we go, a, a term uh, about the levers of power. Um, and I'm going to go uh, back yep. and listen so, to so that again. So dime fill. Where did that come from? Yeah, that dime fill. Yeah. So I I don't know, but I became very familiar with it um, okay. in my in my years in government. Okay. Um, and so so with with a little bit of Google searching, you should yeah. be able to pop it up. Okay. Uh, but it's uh, diplomatic information, military, economic. Originally, it was dime, and then financial intelligence and legal okay. uh, got added. I don't know five or ten years ago. At least yeah, that's when I started popping into it. <laughs> um, yeah. And and now that I've been out of government for a few years, there probably is some new letter. Uh, that that also pops up, right? But but too often we we focus on one of those levers yeah. without mm. really thinking through the the implications to uh, to all of the others. Mm -hmm. um, and so so I'm <laughs> I'm an advocate for you know let's let's think holistically yeah. um, about the problem as opposed to you know every I have a hammer therefore everything must be a nail and therefore must be solved with military economics or, or military economic power, yeah. Right? yeah 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 huh intelligence is one that definitely should be added in there. I think of Kunaris messing with the germans intelligence of what the soviets had yep. and uh, underestimating by a ton how many tanks in the reports that he's telling the leadership uh, the enemy has and so they get into a fight and and hitler actually said if i had known how many tanks they had for real i would have never started this yeah yep <laughs> yeah wow well thanks for doing this bill it's been really great yeah no appreciate it jason all right, my thanks to Bill Conley for joining us. If you want to connect with him, he is the Chief Technology Officer at Mercury Systems. Best way to get to him is through LinkedIn. Listen, if you're a defense contractor, business owner who's reached over a million in revenue, that shouldn't be too hard. Uh, you're probably worrying about a few things. First, growth and expansion. Unless you're 70 years old and you want to get out, we should probably talk then. Uh, if you want increased profitability, if you want to know more about delegation and team building, and if you've got a side project that you find is eating up more and more of your life, and you'd like to be doing that instead of spending all the time on your defense business, these are all things that we can help you with at Cold Start. I'm interested in talking with you if you have any of these issues. If you've got a to-do list as long as your arm and you're just not getting to it month after month that keeps going by and you keep telling yourself you're going to get to it one day, just imagine how many screw-ups are in there, how much waste is in there, how much profit is being thrown away because those issues are not being handled. Sure, the business is going on and businesses that are cash flow positive can eat a lot of mistakes. It's that simple. That's why a lot of marketing doesn't work for companies but they still stay alive. It's because they're cash flow positive and they can just eat that expense. But is it smart? <laughs> is it good to be doing that? Listen, if you want a different way of looking at business, if you want to be able to spend your time and energy as a founder, and I know there are a lot of you who started a business in your 50s and now it's 10 years later and uh, things are a lot more tiring now. Going to trade shows and 
you know, just making the rounds and being existing <laughs> in the industry, right? And showing your face all the time is, is quite tiring. So if you want out of that, let's talk. You can go to coldstartech.com and uh, book an appointment to speak with me, or you can just connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm Jason Kanigan, the host of the Cold Star Project and the founder of Cold Star Technologies. I'll see you soon.